Heavenly Father, there is truly nothing uh, more generous you could do for us than to let us come and worship you. We were made as worshiping beings and worshiping creatures, and if we're not worshiping you, we're gonna worship something else. So thank you for your kindness today to, to help provide this time and allow us to carve out this time that we could reorient ourselves around you. Father, as we come to the end of this letter, as we go to this study so full of, of just an incredible sentence, a declaration of your grace, we ask that by the Spirit you would make it sing to us, you'd make your word come alive to us. We can understand the details of your text, but we can't believe them or internalize them apart from your help. So we ask, Holy Spirit, you would come and make the word of God come alive to us, God. And, and, and I pray, we pray this every single week, and it's always the, the most important thing to have happen. Whether someone is here and they've been a Christian for 32 years, whether, whether they got baptized six months ago, whether they're here their first Sunday, maybe even walking into a church service, or they haven't been around in 12 years. God, what every single one of us needs more than anything else is to leave this time more impressed with what Jesus has done, more more confident in what he has accomplished, more, more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would lift Christ high in this place, that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, event in my life um, that happened was about six months old, so I've been told it. I wasn't there, um, but it's come up a number of times. What I forget often is that my brother almost died when he was about two and a half. Um, we, were, uh, we had a sailboat. We were down on Lake Washington, and the way the, the story's been told to me is my brother was walking down the dock with one of my aunts, who was probably 12 herself at the time, and she was holding his hand, but, but maybe not quite Tight enough or got distracted, and as he was walking down the dock to go sailing, he, he stepped into to one of the holes that happens in the dock between the dock and the, the pylons, and he, he just hit Lake Washington, and he began to sink. My mom sees, and she screams, and my dad goes over, um, try to reach in and grab him, um, but can't see him. He'd already begun to sink down, and if you know that body of water, like many of them around the Pacific Northwest, it's really difficult to see. And so my dad stands on the edge of, of, of the dock, and he takes the, the biggest breath that he possibly can, and he just dives in. And he goes down into the water, into this kind of murky uh, uh, abyss, and, and he, he tells a story. He says, when I'm down there and, and I'm, I'm reaching everywhere I possibly can, I can see nothing. I can see nothing in front of me. And I know if I come up, my son is lost forever. And so he stays down there as long as he possibly can, you know, lungs burning, desperately searching, my mom screaming and crying. And then at some point, he says, I reached out and I felt a shoelace. And he just wraps his fingers around the shoelace and he's able to get his ankle and then grab him and hold him and then swim up to the surface where they both come up and they, and they gasp for, for, for air. My, my dad, I forget this all the time and I'm surprised my, my brother doesn't use it as, or my dad doesn't use his leverage over my older brother, but my dad saved his life. My dad saved his life. My brother could not have saved himself. He's completely incapable at that stage of his life. He couldn't in the moment decide to learn to swim. He couldn't decide to, to shed the heavy clothes that were weighing him down. He had to be rescued. 
What my dad did is an echo, a, a, a faint echo, a beautiful echo, but a faint one of what God does for us in Christ. He saves us. We absolutely cannot save ourselves. The theme we're going to look at today is we finish Titus as this, we are saved by grace and grace alone. We're going to look at one text that captures this in a brilliant and stunning way. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We'll read from Titus 3, from verse 3 to the end of the chapter, but fair warning, um, we're really going to camp out um, in verses 4 through 7 for almost the entirety of today. This is God's holy grace declaring salvation, reminding, I will say to anyone in this room, salvation offering word today. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Great those who love us in the faith. In the faith. Grace be with you all. Feel free to grab a seat. Now, if you've read much of the Bible, even if you haven't read that much of the Bible, one of the things that you'll realize quickly is the Bible loves run-on sentences. Paul, the one who wrote Titus, um, loved run-on sentences. Paul was what's called an apostle. He helped to start churches um, very early on in the history of the church. He wrote half of the New Testament. He loved run-on sentences. Run-on sentences, or maybe you've heard them called fused sentences, defined as a collection of sentences that could easily be broken up by a period, create some punctuation gaps. It's what Stanley Fish in his book, How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One, called subordinating sentences. The idea is you're piling up idea after idea after idea, uh, uh, concept after concept. Like, and likely, you were told, particularly in high school English, to avoid run-on sentences that they're bad. I'm here to tell you that your English teachers were all wrong. The Bible says so. You can go and tell them, unless you're in high school, then just do what your teacher says. My wife is an English teacher. 
My mother-in-law was my English teacher. So, but, but run-on sentences are stunning. I personally love run-on sentences. Paul loved run-on sentences. This, in Titus, we have a run-on sentence here that we're going to stare at. It's not the longest one that Paul ever wrote. If you go to another letter called the, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, a letter to the, the church in Ephesus, Paul has one sentence that in the original language goes from, I believe it's verse 3 or 4 down to verse 14, 257 words. It's almost as long as the Gettysburg Address. What I love about run-on sentences is it captures something that punctuation can sometimes mute. There's an excitement, uh, a rhetorical oomph. Like, there's still something more to say, and I just can't bring myself to stop. There's this amplification. And what we see here in Titus in verses 4 through 7, which is a shorter run-on sentence, it's not... 257 words, but in 72 words, it is a thick and rich and dense summary of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing is he ends this letter, he's just saying, Jesus is so good, I just can't stop. I gotta add something more. Wait, 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 don't walk away. Don't even pause, don't even take a breath. I wanna show you how good he is. I want you to keep looking at the one who is so gracious and so full of glory and grace and kindness and redemption and sacrifice that he can save you. Oh, the least of you, any one of you, no matter what you bring, not according to what you, and he just goes and he goes and he goes goes and he goes and he just doesn't want to stop. Let me read it to you again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a stunning sentence. And what I want to do today is to linger there. If we get time, we'll get to the other verses. If not, we will stay here. I want to do it. Um, we'll look at some of the verbs and the adverbs. We're talking grammar, so let's hang there. Um, this first word, but. This interrupts. It, it, it enters into the the. The sentences, verse 3, this is who you were. And then verse 4 comes in in this divine interruption. Paul, our executive pastor, had this very helpful last insight last week as he uh, was preaching on this text. He said the word, but is a glorious word because what it does is it cancels what came before it. It reverses the fortunes that, that came before. And it was such a helpful illustration. I was really tracking with him. And if you were here, perhaps you felt this. He went on to something really unhelpful, though, after it. He used the example of the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. So, and and, and because, I can't read no, Roman numerals. And so I don't remember what Super Bowl it was. Anyone remember 38, 42? Where, oh, who cares? See, I, I'm with you, Jim. So, so and, you know, I kind of, I want to revisit this, though. I want to revisit this, because Paul's up here, and he says, let me remind you of what happened. You know, we're on the one-yard line. We're down four. We're playing the Patriots. We have 30 seconds left, fourth quarter, and you have Marshawn Lynch, beast mode, standing in the backfield, ready to take the ball. He literally, if Marshawn gets the ball, it's the Red Sea all over again. The, the line will just part, and he will walk across, and we all knew if if you were watching the game, you were watching, you said, they are gonna win the Super Bowl. The ball gets snapped. Marshawn's there. He runs forward, but he shall, who we shall not speak of that betrayed us for the Broncos threw an interception. Maybe we're glad about that. But 
through an interception. And Paul said last week, he says, what, too soon? Yes, Paul. <laughs> Always too soon. <laughs> and I just did it again. So sorry. But it reverses. There's, in that situation, something so good, so much potential became so bad in an instant. But how about this? You meet with your doctor. Yes, the scans have come back. Yes, we have identified what it is. Yes, it is cancer. But it's curable. In an instant, everything is reversed. That's this text. The but changes everything. The, the but is God's intervening divine grace to say things don't have to stay the way they were. You don't have to stay rebellious and disobedient and far from God and broken and sinful and alienated and lost. My brother was drowning, but my dad was right there at the dock. But the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's a really precious word that reinforces something powerful, um, the why Jesus came. And it's not so... God would show us kindness. It's the expression of his kindness. It's not so God would love us. The reason Christ appeared is because God already loved us. The order matters so much. Again, going back to my dad on the side of this dock as my brother is drowning in Lake Washington. My dad jumped into the water because he loved my brother. He jumped into the danger to rescue because he loved him. It's not what caused his love to pour out. It was an expression of that. The appearing of Christ is not what caused God to love. It was the ultimate expression of his love. We have passages like, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John Stott, in his incredible book, The Cross of Christ, says it like this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement or, or the gospel or the work that Jesus did to save us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. He wasn't resistant to doing it. His goodness and loving kindness was ready to, to, to be poured out. It, 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 it was the, the predecessor to the coming of Christ. One of the major um, differences, though, in the story of my dad saving my brother and, and God saving us is the contrast that happens in verse 3 again as we, we go back to it. This is what we were. This is how we rebelled. This is how we, we failed. But God still loved. And God still came, and God still pursued, and God still claimed, and God still jumped in. Denny Burke, in his commentary on Titus, says like, he says, the point is that God saves sinners and gives them all of his own goodness, not because they are good. They are not. Not because they deserved it. They did not. Not because they were lovable. They were not. In fact, verse 3 says they were hateable. God saved them and graced them, not because of anything worthy in them. Instead, he saved sinners because of his own mercy. God loved sinners and cared for them because of his own character and virtue and not theirs. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, 
you might wonder, why is it that when we talk about how good the grace of God is and good the love of God is, we, we often, and I would say rightfully, remind ourselves of how bad we've been and how bad we can be. Like, well, can't we just talk about how generous he is? Why do we have to talk about all the stuff we failed to do? Well, maybe you can think about it like, like this. Like, if God loves us at our worst, if God sent Christ for us at our verse three or, or your last week or your last year or your last 20 years or this morning worst, if God loved us in that, what could we possibly do to make him stop loving us? And the answer is nothing. If God loves us at our worst, that he, out of his goodness and loving kindness, would send his son and his son joyfully come to come get us, at our very worst, at our most rebellious, what could ever possibly cause him to say, I think I'm done? Nothing. We are pursued by grace and grace alone. We are loved by grace and grace alone. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. There's a sense in which the word saved um, is present. If you've been saved, you are saved. There's a sense in which it's future, and this text alludes to that when it talks about the, this air of eternal life, that because you're saved, you, you will be saved. But the way the, the, the word is used here is this is past. It's saying that you've been saved, that someone else did the work of accomplishing something on your behalf. It's completed and done, and now you get to live in that reality. Why? Look at the phrase that's connected to it. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Again, you have this divine reversal. It's a clarification of the grace of God that saves us. And I love that Paul is going to, to great pains to say it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not how you parent. It's not how you perform. It's not how you live. It's not what you do now. Titus is loaded with an invitation toward a command towards good works. We might get there if we get to verse 8, but, but, but he's, he's trying to say, I want you to know it's not based on you. It's not rooted in you. It's not what kind of neighbor you are. It's not what kind of 15 you are, the teenager to your parents. It's not how honored. It's not how hardworking. It's not your pedigree. It's not your resume. It's not your grades. It's not your income. It's not your family background. It's not your profile. It's not your living situation. It's, it's not according to what you do. It's only according to God's. And this beautiful word, mercy. One of my favorite Hebrew words. So the first two-thirds of your Bible, what's called the Old Testament, is written predominantly in Hebrew. The, the last third, the, what's known as the New Testament, is written in Greek. But when I go to the Old Testament, one of my favorite Hebrew words is this beautiful word called hesed. The word hesed can be translated as um, steadfast love. We reference it with Psalm 103, as high as the heavens, so high as his steadfast love for us. There's a beautiful song by a band called Ghost Ship called Hesed, and, it, and it's got this line, is a beautiful hesed, and then it goes, we cannot break your love. This word hesed, unbreakable love, everlasting love and compassion. Um, I love this, this one commentator translated it this way. Hesed is in the expression of God's loyal love. A love that will never wear out, no matter what you do, that you cannot wear it out. It will never cease. 
Now, why I bring this all up is we're in the New Testament that was written in Greek is the Greek word most often translated from the word hesed is the word that we have here for mercy. So we could maybe translate this verse like this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his, uh, his loyal love. Came across a, a story recently. It was, a, it was a guy who lived on his own, pretty solitary guy, lived in the south of Spain, um, but he had a, a dog named Canelo, which is basically his best friend, and he would wander around the village, and, and people got to know him over the years, but he really stayed to himself quite a bit. He was also a very sick man. And so every week he had to go to the hospital multiple times for dialysis. And when he would go to the hospital, he would take his dog Canelo with him and they would walk to the hospital. And, and rightfully so, the hospital is like, you, your dog can't come in. And so Canelo would, would wait at the doors of the hospital until, um, I was, I was going to say his master, I was say maybe his friend was able to come out. And so he would go in and have dialysis and they would come out and his dog would be waiting for him. He'd go back home and then again and again. And he did this for a handful of years. And then one time, um, he, this man went to dialysis and during uh, dialysis, something went wrong and he passed away. His dog Canelo was outside the doors waiting. After a few hours, waiting. Next morning, waiting. Next day, still waiting. Didn't leave for food, didn't leave for water, didn't leave for shelter. He just continued to wait. And the people of that community and of that hospital obviously knew what was going on. It had seen them come and go and come and go. And so instead of actually removing the dog, what they did is they, they came, they took turns just bringing food and water to Canelo to let him sit there and wait. And day after day, and what ended up being year after year, Canelo waited. He waited for 12 years. That's love that's loyal. How much more? How much more the love of God that loved while we were our worst and loves us still today, if you are at your worst, loves that much to send his son, not demanding your works of righteousness to save, but out of his unbreakable steadfast love Oh, we are loved by grace and grace alone. The verse continues. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And then we have this word by. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. As we keep tracing out this sentence, as we come across this word by, we begin to learn like how. How do any of us come to believe this grace of God? And this verse is saying it's by the grace of God. And the language it uses here is by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. It's saying you come to believe by the work of another. The word regeneration is the same word that Jesus uses in another part of the Bible where he says you must be born again. It's saying right now in your condition apart from God's intervention, you have a heart that's not just opposed to God, it's stone before God. And what God does is in his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his pursuit is he changes your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That you become alive to the things of God. What used to be offensive or, or used to be in, that you were indifferent to, you now come and say, oh, but there is a God of grace and love who has claimed me and sent his son for me. And you come alive. And Jesus, is, or Paul is saying here, this is how it happens through the intervention of the spirit to come and give you new life. 
And then you have this other word, renewal. And this is connected to new life. You've been made new creations with new capacities and new affections. But the the idea of renewal is that now God is washing you. He's cleansing you. He's rehabbing you. He's rehabilitating you. That you are no longer people that were foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions. But incrementally, degree by degree, Degree, you're able to be set free from the tyranny of slavery to sin and set free to the things of God. This word renewal, transformed. Verse three, that's what we were. And what Paul is saying is the grace of God can, it doesn't just save you, but it can change you. I've gone through a few different uh, seasons in my life where I got really into car shows. Um, Discovery Channel, you know, Motor Trend stuff. I just got really into to, to various car shows. And some of my favorite of the shows that take really beat up, rusted, broken down vehicles and they turn them into something glorious. There's a show that I watched, it's probably a year or two ago, and it actually takes place north of here um, in Tappan, BC, this area known as Rust Valley. It's an area where, for some reason, it's like where every Canadian decided to dump their vehicles. And so you just have this, this valley where there's just rusted vehicles after rusted vehicles, some really cool old vehicles, but they are beat up. And so this show called Rust Valley Restores, it centers around a guy named Mike Hall. And this guy will go into a field full of 300 just absolutely destroyed vehicles, vehicles up on blocks, no tires, no rims, no windows. Yeah, like metal is all bent, it's corroded. It's like there's no engine. All, the, all that's in it is it could be like a barn owl or a bunch of rats. And I mean, it's just it's got hay and weeds everywhere. And he looks at it and he sees something beautiful. And so what he does is he brings his flatbed, you know, pickup, his trailer, and he, and he, and he pulls, he, he reaches in, he, 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 he ransoms out of this, this field, this, this vehicle that is so, is everything but dead. And he puts it on the back and he takes it back to his shop and, and lovingly and masterfully and at great expense to himself, he mends it and he fixes it. He puts a new engine in it, a new heart. He reupholsters it, finds new wheels for it. He, he loves it. He lovingly brings it back to life. What once was dead is now alive. And, and I watched that and I go, that is incredible that somebody has that kind of vision, can look at something so broken and create something so beautiful. Oh, when God looks at us, he doesn't see just the mess and the rust and the wreckage and the brokenness, and the stupid choices. He sees what can be a masterpiece. So he comes, he appears, he he grabs through the spirit, he lays hold, and he begins to refashion and remake. Oh, we, let me summarize this. We believe by grace and grace alone, and we are changed by grace and grace alone. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Poured out, verb, richly, adverb. Richly, wealthy, abundantly. It's not, to me, it's, it's opulently. You just get this picture of a deluge of God's grace. There is no stinginess in the grace of God for his people. You don't have to convince him to act. 
He's not withholding, waiting for you to do works of righteousness. It's not according to your works of righteousness. It's rooted in his character and his, his design and imprint for you. And he just lavishes it upon us. For the last two years, one of my, my good buddies has gifted me and, and a few friends with a all-expensive, all-expenses night out on the town in Seattle. He takes us to his favorite steak place, and then he treats us to a, a, a crack in game. And so the last couple of years we go down and, and, and he, he's just like, listen, this is the only rule is you have to get everything you want. Deal. And so you open up the menu. And in fact, it is hard to receive even that type of grace, isn't it? That's a sort of opulence. And so you open up the menu and it's anything on there you want. And like the first year, I'm kind of like meandering towards the chicken. And, and, and he says, you will not have the chicken. And if you're a vegan, I was looking at the tofu. And so whatever, translate however you need to make this work for you. Myself, I'm looking at the chicken. And he says, you shall not have the chicken. You need the Wagyu sampler. You, 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 you. No, don't look at that page of the drink menu. Flip four pages. Look here. This is where. And it's like you're at the end of the meal and, and you're wearing your stretchy pants because you knew what was happening. And you still ordered dessert. And it's just like it, it was poured, his, his favor and kindness and grace was poured out richly. Oh, what has been given to all of us in Christ makes that look like leftovers from three years ago. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We're pursued by grace and grace alone. We are loved by grace and grace alone. We are changed by grace alone. We come to believe by grace and grace alone. It's, it's, it's by grace and grace alone. And then you look where this goes. You pour it out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that these, these flows, that's why you can't stop. Paul's like, I can't stop. I have to complete the sentence. So that being justified by grace. The word there for justified, it's, it's uh, in a sort of a tense. It's a, a tense, a part of speech that means something done in the past by another towards you. Someone else did it for you. That's what it's saying. Justified by God through Jesus, applied by the Spirit. Declared just. When the Bible uses the word like justified, it's not just saying forgiven. It's actually saying you're seen as righteous. You're seen as, as just before a holy God. And we could spend... We'll spend millennium in the new creation just meditating on that. You are declared just. You who, verse 3, were disobedient, led astray. Me, who is often disobedient and led astray. In the sight of God, through the grace of God, are declared just. Denzel Washington is probably one of my favorite actors and has for sure starred in some of my favorite movies. And one of those movies, it's, it's, um, it's a really powerful movie. Um, it's difficult to watch because of the story that it's retelling. It's based on a true story. It's the story, uh, The Hurricane. And it depicts um, the story of falsely accused boxer Reuben The Hurricane Carter, um, his story of being wrongfully sentenced and imprisoned. Her, uh, Hurricane was a, a boxer and by many was estimated to become the greatest of all time. He was also a civil rights worker, and so he got falsely accused of, uh, in, in, of being involved in a triple homicide. He was taken to court, and there was a bunch of uh, fraudulent testimony that was used against him, and he was accused and then sentenced to prison. And I believe this is back in the early 
or so 60s. Um, and so he was sent to prison. His lawyers began to work to try to fight this, to say this is it, it, rooted in racism. This is in, unjust. He did not do this, um, but, but they lost their appeals. And so he remained in prison. He remained in prison for, for years and years and years. Muhammad Ali came out to his defense and was going around kind of the circuit trying to drum up support to get him liberated and emancipated from this wrongful sentencing. Um, Bob Dylan, any Bob Dylan fans in the room? One, okay, so, all right, not, not really, I've never done that before, um, so, but God, who is rich in mercy, even when I did stupid stuff, saved me, um, Bob Dylan wrote a, wrote a great, Bob Dylan wrote a great song called The Hurricane in Support, you should go listen to the song, it's an incredible song to try to drum support, but none of it worked. None of it worked. Now it's the 80s. He got thrown into prison in the 60s, and now it's uh, in the early 80s, and there's a, uh, there's a young kid, there's a teenager actually named Lesra Martin who read um, the Hurricane's biography and really got intrigued in his story. And this kid grew up in, in uh, the Bronx or Brooklyn, I believe. He ended up in Canada. It's some commune. It's kind of a wild story, but he was basically connected to some very influential, very powerful, um, very wealthy people. So he began this exchange with, uh, with Reuben and, he, and, he, and, and was like, what can I do? And so basically went to this group of people and said, we need to use our resources to try to free him. And so they began a process of then recruit a bunch of lawyers, began a bunch of work funding this thing, and they began to fight this wrongful imprisonment. Um, and they won. November 7th, 1985, U.S. District Court Judge H. Lee Sorokin handed down the decision saying this, the extensive record clearly demonstrates that the petitioner's convictions were predicated upon an appeal to racism rather than reason and concealment rather than disclosure. But he didn't get set free yet. The state fought it. The state fought it for another uh, couple of years. It actually ended up kind of going up to the Supreme Court and finally got struck down. And he was finally, on February 1988, after 22 years of longful imprisonment, declared just. Now imagine what that felt like. Now there's a major story, the difference in, in our story and his story as it pertains to God. We're not just. The sentence of the Bible is not that you have been wrongly accused. The condemnation fits. The sentence has been merited. We might say it like this. The extensive record clearly demonstrates that, Rob, you have fallen far short of the glory of God and have willfully and consciously and consistently rebelled against his good commands. But there's another that's appeared, the only truly innocent one, who by his grace and his kindness will become guilty for your sake. In the story of the gospel, it is as if Jesus came down looking to those that were rightly sentenced and said, I'll take the sentence. I'll take the punishment. I will exchange their unrighteousness for my righteousness. I will take their guilt and they will, by union with me, connection with me, hiding behind me, you could think entourage behind Christ, there with me, all of my goodness, all of my righteousness, all of my kindness, all of my perfection, that, that a holy God will see that and not their sin. 
See, when this text says you are declared righteous and just, the declaration rightfully, like we're a culture that loves justice. Justice would truly look like this. We get what we deserve. Grace is we get what we have never earned. For God to be just, Christ took it himself. The just one in the place of the unjust, the guiltless one in the place of the guilty. The guilty go free because the guiltless took our place. And now the declaration we hear is never condemned. We never have to worry about the the facts of our case being recreated and presented and us thrown back in. Because it's not according to works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy and grace, which he has given to us fully in the work of Christ alone. Oh, we are pursued by grace and grace alone. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We are, we are come to know a knowledge of the truth by grace and grace alone. We are changed by grace alone. We are loved by grace and grace alone. And we are justified by grace and grace alone. And we're not done. One more. Poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That what we get to become is hope-filled heirs, that this isn't it, that one day life eternal is coming. This is the Bible. It's one of the ways the Bible uses language to talk about the new creation. This is saying your new creations in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, and one day you'll be fully new creations because he's still going to rehab you and restore you. It's going to be stunning. And he's going to put you in his new creation where there's no deprivation and no lack and no sickness and no sorrow and no sin and no animosity and no divisions and no quarreling and no political elections. And no, I mean, we could kind of go through the list of how glorious it's going to be that we get to live right now because of the work that God has done in Christ in the past. We get to look forward to the future with hope. Why? Because it's not based on us. We're hope-filled heirs by grace and grace alone. A number of years ago, there was a, a tourist down in, in Vegas, and they hit a $230,000 jackpot. Woo! Would you like that? You're like, I don't know what to say. It's, it's church. I don't know if I can talk about going to Vegas. You can go to Vegas. Just tithe 50%. So, <laughs> jokes. Hey, no, I'm just joking. All right. <laughs> I'm just joking. But <laughs> this person hit a $230,000 jackpot, um, but didn't realize it. The machine was malfunctioning in some way, so the lights didn't go off and the sounds didn't go off, and no one working at the casino realized it until a little bit later, because they have pretty strict rules on Nevada Gaming Commission comes in and stuff. And so they were able to actually find out that, no, actually, someone did hit the jackpot. No, we don't know who it is, but we have to go find them. And so they began this huge exhaustive process to go locate the person who'd won this $230,000 jackpot. They were, they were reviewing surveillance footage from tons of casinos. They're looking at travel records. They're doing interviews, all this stuff. And they finally tracked down this guy. His name is Robert Taylor of Arizona. They finally found him and awarded him this prize. And I think about this, like this guy is now back in Arizona, you know, wandering around Arizona. You know, he was in Vegas. He probably thought he lost everything. He's back in Arizona, tears in his eyes. Honey, I lost it all. There's nothing left, right? Because he didn't know. Imagine what it felt like when they said, no, you've won $230,000. Here it is. How many of us right now are wandering around forgetting that God's like eternal life? Here it is. It's yours. We are heirs. And when we remember, we're full of hope by grace and grace 
alone. I'm going to cut about 95% of what's left of my sermon. Um, But I do want to connect to verse 8. Because if you continue to read, you might hear this and, well, what do I do with how verse 8 proceeds? Brian Chappell in his commentary on Titus uh, references Paul Koistry, who's a missionary and a seminary professor who was known for preaching about grace exhaustively all the time. And he was asked this one time, he says, why do you preach about grace so much? And his reply was this, there is nothing else to preach. Now, I think if you read through verse 7, you say, Paul believes the same thing. There is nothing else to preach. There's nothing else to talk about. This is it. This is everything. That's why he goes on and says, the saying is trustworthy. Verses 4 through 7, that's what he's saying. That saying, which many scholars think was like an early baptismal creed. This is what people were saying is like, as they're getting baptized in recognition of what Christ has done, they're saying these lines as a declaration of the great grace of God. But then look at the rest of of verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Ah, isn't Paul moving on from grace? Isn't he saying, okay, grace is amazing. Now go do good works. And a lot of you grew up in that environment. A lot of you, if you grew up in church, you heard that. Yes, Jesus is amazing. Now go do, 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 do. And here's the challenge. That is true, but why? But why? Is Paul, when he says, go Devote yourselves to good works. Is he moving past grace? No. Simply put, no. What's happening here is he's saying this is the outworking of grace. That those who believe the gospel, that have been changed by the spirit, that while they were unlovable, have been loved, will go in love. That those who have been gifted while they were destitute by the grace and the lavish riches of Christ will go be generous. You could think about it like this. Like when the sun shines on the moon, the moon can't help but reflect that light. More dimly, less brilliantly, but it reflects it nonetheless. When the glory and grace of God reflects upon a Christian, we cannot help imperfectly maybe not as much as we want, but to reflect the very grace we've been given. Maybe I'd phrase it this way. Do you know that your good works towards other people are actually just God's grace enacted towards them? That grace is God's good works towards you? When he gave us what we didn't earn, don't deserve, can't pay back, and we go do good works for others? It gives witness. It bears witness that you believe the gospel. It's a way of saying, oh, I'm doing this not to earn, but to worship. And I'm going to end with, with, with this. Um, it does what this text says. It's profitable towards others, and it's beautiful. I want to watch a, a quick story. This is going to be about three or so minutes um, about a guy named Nicholas Winston who uh, got known as the British Schindler um, for his role in saving over 700 Jewish children during the Holocaust. And, and his story actually went unnoticed for 50 years. He didn't even tell his wife about it until someone stumbled upon a scrapbook up in his, his attic. And, and I want to do this for a couple of reasons. That when we ask the question of like, why do good works? Watch this story and tell me you don't want to just go do some of the stuff that he just did. The other reason I want you to see it is this little word in here that says to devote yourselves. I think we all have a sense of like, we want to go do good stuff, but this word devote captures that sometimes it's hard. 
And sometimes it doesn't pay off right away. And sometimes we don't even see it. And so I want you to watch this story and to see what happens when, when, when good works happen through you by the grace of God. And so maybe someone could go in the back. Uh, Hannah, maybe you could turn the lights off in the back and we'll watch uh, this, this video and then we will wrap up, I promise, quickly. There are some stories which we're not only an audience to, but may become their participants. Nikki's story came out by accident after this scrapbook surfaced after gathering dust for decades. Once it did, though, it set about a whole chain of incredible events. That's me before I left for England. But until 1988, I had no idea who had rescued me from all but certain death. It was this old man who had saved my life and that of hundreds of others in the Second World War. Yet for 50 years, we knew nothing about him. Four children. This is his scrapbook. There are all kinds of fascinating pictures in it. Perhaps you can see this is a picture of Nicholas Winton himself with one of the children he rescued. If you look at the very back of this scrapbook, Fascinating things in it, all the letters. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. <laughs> I wore this around my neck, and this is the actual purse that we were given to come to England. And I'm another of the children that you saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? I'm not crying, I'm not crying. <laughs>
the good work of God in the gospel was to save you by grace and grace alone. And then the good work of God in the gospel puts grace in you to go do good works for others. Not to earn it, but to show it off. And that's what it looks like. Whatever it looks like, whatever place God has you play. Finish Titus the way the, the letter finishes down in verse 15. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, just continue to make much of Christ in this place. Lift him up in this room. Lift him up in our hearts. Lift him up in our imaginations, our minds, our stories. God, we thank you for a sentence like this, and there's so many others in your word, but we thank you for this sentence, such a, such a deep and rich, incredible declaration of your grace. That we are pursued by grace and grace alone, we are saved by grace and grace alone, we are redeemed by grace and grace alone, we are loved by grace and grace alone. That we come to believe by grace alone, that we are washed and cleansed and made new by grace alone, God. And that we do good works by grace and grace alone. Do a work in each and every one of our hearts, whether we are near to you or far from you today. Show off how great you are, your loyal love, your kindness and goodness. And as this week confronts us, and yet again, the struggles and failures and difficulties and anger rise up in us, let us go back to this story. Let us go back to this text. And as the needs arise around us, may your goodness and loving kindness flow to us and through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.